For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Today's podcast is all about rorts, con jobs, and dodgy deals. There's one deal you can trust. A digital subscription to The Spectator Australia is just $16.99 a month, with one month free to boot. If you're enjoying Australiana, you'll love the insightful articles in the magazine each week, which includes Australian political analysis in addition to all of the great content from The Spectator's UK edition. Sign up at spectator.com.au forward slash join. G'day and welcome to Australiana from The Spectator Australia, a series of conversations on Australian politics and life. I'm Will Kingston. My guest today is Dr. Cameron Murray. Cameron is an Australian author and economist who specialises in property markets, environmental economics and corruption. I was compelled to reach out to Cameron after reading his latest book, Rigged, How Networks of Powerful Mates Rip Off Everyday Australians. It's an extraordinary and shocking story of how boys' clubs and backroom deals have come to dominate businesses and governments in Australia, robbing ordinary Aussies of half of their wealth. Cameron Murray, welcome to Australiana. Thanks for having me, Will. So the title of your book is Game of Mates. That's as good a place as any to start. Tell our listeners, what is the game and more specifically, what are its core components? Yeah, so the game of mates is essentially how we describe with my co-author Paul Friders the process of what we call grey corruption. So a lot of attention gets put on bribery and very blatant corruption. And the game of mates is how we describe grey corruption, which is sort of this pattern of repeated and reciprocal favours amongst selected people over time. That's why it's a game. And the purpose of the book is to help people identify the game. So we go around different sectors of the economy and explain how the game works, but also extract some general, general principles of how the game's played. Right? So there are essentially four ingredients. The first one is what we call a grey gift. There's no grey corruption unless you've got the power over society's resources to allocate something valuable to someone that doesn't cost you personally. Right? And I'm assuming it's called a grey gift because it may sometimes not actually be illegal. It's in that shade of grey, which is, which is a bit harder to determine. Exactly the point. So at the end of the day, politicians and bureaucrats have to decide who gets a construction contract, how something's going to happen and you know where the city's going to expand with upzoning, what they're going to build in terms of infrastructure, so which landowners near that infrastructure benefit. The, a decision's got to be made, right? But you can compare 
the decisions that do get made <laughs> with more of a randomized decision-making process and see that there are some pretty obvious patterns of who ends up getting these a train line built to their suburb, which developers seem to get their roads upgraded or upzoned and, and those sorts of things. So the grey gift is how we describe a discretionary ability to allocate society's resources to benefit someone else. And, and we differentiate that also from what you call a private gift, where if I give you something of value, it literally costs me the exact same amount. So if I'm giving you a birthday present, spend a hundred bucks, it costs me exactly a hundred dollars to give you a hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. But if I'm a politician or a bureaucrat deciding on a particular construction contract, I can decide to award you a contract that should cost 1 million, but you've put in a price of 1.3 million, right? And so I can choose you, give you that $300,000 premium and not cost me personally a cent. The rest of society is going to pay that 300,000 premium to you, but I get the discretion over the decision. Mm. So that's... That's the grey gift and these are hard to spot, right? That's why we spend some time in the book drawing out the idea that uh, when you have personal discretion over something of value uh, that the rest of society is giving, then you've got a favour that you can start trading. Yeah. Uh, So that's the grey gift. And without this, you know, in a world without grey gifts, if every time I tried to favour my mate, it cost me exactly that amount personally, there's not really a lot of incentive to be corrupt or or to give favours and reciprocate favours because nothing is really a favour. It all costs me exactly what it benefits you. Yeah. We'll go into more detail on what those grey gifts can look like. You said there were four elements to the game. What's next? The grey gifts are the first ingredient. The second ingredient are the mates. You need someone... To give a grey gift to who is going to reciprocate. So there's no point in me, for example, as a politician, as a bureaucrat, making decisions that favour a certain person if we don't have this sort of friendship network, right, where I expect that person to reciprocate either back to me directly or indirectly through other people in our friendship network, let's just call it. So you need this group of mates uh, because it's And that's what differentiates grey corruption or the game of mates from bribery, for example, where bribery is I pay you up front and you deliver me a favour, right? So your grey gift might be worth a million dollars to me. It doesn't cost you anything and you'll take a price of $100,000 as a bribe, right? So you get $100,000, I get $900,000 net. That's bribery. But but the grey gift is all about being on credit so that when you give a favour, you've got this group of mates and within that group these favors are repeatedly allocated back inside the group instead of outside so as a, as a collective we end up capturing the value from all those gray gifts and all those subjective decisions about allocating society's resources i have the image of the eastern suburbs sydney private school network in my mind is it that simple or is there a less obvious group of mates here that i'm missing It can be that simple. In fact, you talk about (laughs) private schools in the book saying in, for example, the United States, it's more of a a university thing and and hence getting into one of those prestigious universities is highly valuable because of the network that you get once you're in there. But in Australia, that network is more of a high school network. That's certainly true. But it's also the case that some of these groups sort of form for other purposes initially and then evolve into being these professional networks Uh, You can think about clubs and churches, cricket clubs uh, are famous in Sydney for being places of networking and golf clubs. And, And although it's not that membership of that club itself, which is part of the mateship network, 
that's one of the ways you you access it or, or become a member, which actually leads nicely to the third ingredient, which is a signal that you uh, want to be part of this mateship group, right? It's important that we don't accidentally give out favors to people who aren't going to reciprocate, who aren't going to be part of that group over time. Or who so may expose you. They might. That, that's right. That's the risk. You you give a favor to the wrong person. They feel like they're, they can get some credit for dobbing you in and that becomes a huge mistake and that risks you and, and the other mates in the group. So like any social creature... Uh, we have an elaborate signaling network. It's almost like the peacocks of corruption here. We've got to show people our true colors to show that we want to be members of that club, that we're going to be loyal, that we're going to reciprocate. Now, that can be as simple as political donations. And we call this sort of expensive signaling burning money. Basically, you want to show that, hey, I'm willing to just throw money away to prove loyalty to you. So you can donate to political parties, you can join the right professional groups, you can join the right golf clubs. And the more of these you do, the more credible your signal becomes because you've burnt, you, you know, you've already invested a lot of money for no reward, the reward being acknowledgement that you're part of this group. So, so you need some credible signals and sort of one of the ways one of the puzzles we we try and resolve in the book is is political donations a lot of um a lot of analysis and a lot of the anti-corruption thinking amongst the legal profession in particular is that political donations are bribes right you essentially give 20 30,000 to a political party or 100,000 whatever it is and you expect a particular favor back for that but of course one of the problems with that is that it's not clear that donating money to a political party is really a good bribe, especially when half the donations in Australian politics are from donors who donate to both sides of politics equally. So it's not really convincing to me to say, hey, I'm going to help out your campaign by giving you $50,000 if you do me this favour. Oh, sorry, but I'm also giving your opposition $50,000. So the net effect is that you're no better off than they are in your campaign. Right? So that's a real puzzle. Like, why, why would you do that? If these are bribery attempts, you're essentially, by donating to both parties, you're undermining the effectiveness of the bribe to one of the parties, right? Because it's less valuable to them because you're, you're also donating to their competition. So I, I guess the solution to that puzzle is that if do political donations are not bribes, but actually signals about wanting to participate in this mateship network, then the point is, it doesn't, it's not about giving you an advantage. It's simply about giving away money and it doesn't for no return so it's the very fact that i dropped a hundred thousand on each political party that shows hey he's dropped two hundred thousand dollars this gets nothing for it like the net effect on changing the political outcome is zero he must want to participate in this game he's shown he's willing to burn money and so the analogy i like to use is that political donations are like the facial tattoos of the political mafia they're like, mm. you know, a high cost thing you do to show loyalty. And so that's you know, the biggest donors in the country, the pharmacy guild and things like that. They, they donate equally to both sides and have done for decades. Uh, and the reason is they're showing they want to participate in this game. And when there's a great gift to give, they want to be on the receiving end. That's interesting. So we have a slightly dodgy gift potentially. We have a group of mates that's willing to accept it. We have a signal to suggest that there is a willingness to receive this mm -hmm. favor. What's the final element of the game? Well, the last element is what we call a, a myth or a story. 
you can't just say, hey, upzoning me is good because I want to make money, right? I'm not going to flood the market and bring prices down. Or you can't just say, paying me this much for this contract is good because I'm a nice guy and we're mates. You, you need to essentially hide this activity behind a shield of a plausible story that the rest of the public can see and go, oh, yeah, it kind of makes sense. That politician really should have discretion over that decision and do it arbitrarily rather than requiring some kind of randomized or some kind of jury of peers, something like that. No, 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 we, we can believe that. So this myth-making becomes this really important ingredient. And a lot of the lobbying in Australia is really about myth-making to keep up appearances that this game of mates, which is good for all the insiders, should continue and that it's actually good for outsiders because we've got this sort of plausible myth for why that's true. And that sort of covers your tracks at the end of the day. And that's the final ingredient. I found that ingredient particularly interesting because it forced me to reevaluate my own thinking on and my own worldview. When I when I started reading this book, I responded instinctively by going, "Well, that's just kind of the way the world works." And having read that final uh, ingredient, I realized, "Well, that's probably the reason I think that's probably because that mythology is so entrenched that it has has conditioned me to think that way." Well, I, I think that's true, and and I, I was very much like you. I sort of took on face value what the press reports and what the lobby groups say, thinking that there must be some merit to this. You've got this organization of people employed making these arguments and participating in the political debate. It can't all be for show. Now I really see it for what it is and I find it very difficult to to take any of these stories told by by you know vested interests in the policy debate. I, f- I find it very difficult to give any credibility to any of it when at the end of the day it's obvious that it it's all talking their own book. And unless for some random chance you get a retired politician, qu- quite often I've noticed politicians who retire or heads of organizations that retire become very honest all of a sudden when there's no benefit for them continuing to participate in this game. And, and that's a, a, an interesting glimpse, I think, into, into how substantial the myth-making can be and how sort of loyal people can be to it for decades until really they, they become honest right at the end of their lives. You alluded to this at the start of that answer and how your mindset has evolved on this topic. What got you interested in this? Yeah, that's a great question, Will. I think mostly I used to work for a couple of property developers in Queensland and I went to one of those well-networked private schools and I'd worked in the government and I'd seen, for example, the staff rotation from the regulator into the lobby group and the regulated sort of industry representative and back. And all of that had really, you know, I hadn't quite pieced it together, but these are all signs that a lot of economics and a lot of what I've been doing is is very much swept up in this game and I'd really like to do something useful. I actually decided to become a medical doctor before I did my PhD on grey corruption because I thought at least then I can get up every day and do something useful for someone, whereas I feel like I'm swept up in this myth-making game, part of the the game as an economist. But I eventually got convinced by Paul Friders, my co-author, who was then my PhD supervisor, who wasn't yet my PhD supervisor, to come and do a PhD and and sort of unpick what I've been observing and see if what I was thinking made sense or didn't or whether there was better ways to, to think about these processes. And the book, which is, by the way, now called Rigged, which is the second edition, came out last year in 2022. That book was sort of the result of my PhD of all the things I'd looked at that potentially didn't get into academic papers, but I thought was really useful to help communicate all the things I'd learned in those four years. 
Were you and Paul concerned that this could be used as a handbook to play the game better? Yeah, I actually pretty early on had some comments from people saying, hey, this is a good how-to guide for building networks in Australian politics. And I guess, yeah, my, my response to that is that, well, they don't really need the book, right? You, you learn on the job. And the fact that I have articulated what people happen to learn by doing, don't think really changes the process. But what I think it does and where it's valuable is somewhat changing the mindset particularly of lawyers who are involved in anti-corruption policy, who are very much not thinking along those lines of a long-term game of reciprocity where you can get a favour today, have no exchange of money and get a favour reciprocated, not even from the same person, but a related person in that group in five or 10 years' time. You know, you're almost giving the favour on credit Right? and you're relying on that network as your sort of credit enforcement mechanism, that idea is really absent in our legal thinking about corruption. So we're actually very good at dealing with bribery and nepotism and really some of the more basic corruption, I would call it. Basic corruption is a good word, but we're not really good at this more structural, institutionalized grey corruption. And the thing is, the value of those grey gifts can be orders of magnitude bigger with grey corruption than with sort of personal or basic corruption, right? So if I take a bribe from one contractor for one thing, okay, they might benefit a million dollars here, a million dollars there. If all of the senior bank staff rotate through the regulator and exchange favours and work to draft the banking regulations over many years, well, the gains, the value of the grey gift there can be hundreds of millions uh, amongst a small group. And this goes to the costs of the game. And according to the research and the modeling you've done, it's enormous. In fact, you say in the book that the game potentially costs everyday Australians roughly half of their real wealth. Potential criticism could be that ever since the days of Marx, people have been bashing capitalism with lines like this. Is what you're proposing a critique of capitalism? No, not not really. In certain areas, we, we are sort of critical of, for example, universities and public sector institutions. And in other areas, we're critical of the, the sort of relationship between public regulators and private institutions. And I think it's a pretty pragmatic look. So in terms of that cost estimate, the way we sort of go about it is we go through a bunch of sectors of the economy, mining, banking, property, transport infrastructure, some of the main games. And we compare the way Australia operates to the world's best in that area. And so by comparing us to the world's best, we sort of create this artificial utopian alternative that no country actually has because the best banking regulated country is not that great at everything else as well. And compared to that, we think, hey, that's an ambitious benchmark that we should be aiming for because we know we can make big leaps towards that sector by sector at a time as we change things. So in terms of capitalism, the critique is more about the structure of decision-making in politics. So we err towards things like lotteries and juries where we realise as a collective we have to make a decision about something. We have to decide if the city expands up the coast or down the coast. And when we decide that, the infrastructure we build is going to advantage some landowners over others. So we have to make that decision. So should we let the decision makers be former property owners from those areas who've rotated in and become sat on the board of that committee? Or should we say, hey, why don't we have a panel of random citizens like we have in the criminal court 
who can discuss or judge for themselves? Or why don't we, when we're giving out certain contracts, just get a short list of people so it's easy to get on the short list and use a lottery system. For example, you know, giving out grants at university, that's closer to home for, for what I do these days. It's very much about insiders giving grants to people and topics they like the research on. And the obvious solution to that is, well, we allocate by lottery. You get your short list of applicants and then it's a lottery for this year. And and that allows you to get some fresh eyes, fresh blood into that decision and means that the decision makers don't really have a great gift to give because they're not really making a decision about who gets a million dollar grant and who doesn't. They're just operating the lottery. I imagine a response to that could potentially be that that's not a meritocratic approach, that people with less worthy causes are getting grant money. How do you respond to that? Yeah, well, I think the risk with that approach is that you end up back into the myth-making situation and the person you give it to, obviously, you think is the most deserving. So you then tell stories about why that's true. Of course, you must because that's the person you chose. So for sort of your internal mental consistency, that's what you do. And I think we just have to acknowledge that we we have to design a system that's meritocratic knowing that the people in the system are human beings with personal biases who are seduced into these games of uh, reciprocal favor trading, this game of mates. And then if you think about it from a system design perspective, you would say, hey, the, the lottery there is meritocratic because on average, people get the same chance at winning. Yeah, that that's, I think, a, a nice nuance. And we'll get back to what your proposed solutions look like at the end but i want to now go to a few examples of the game in action taking that industry view that that you you take in the book let's start with property development what does the game look like in property yeah so the the gray gift in property is what we call the golden pen tick (laughs) which is where you get a new regulation a new town planning rule that means that the land you bought that was cheap because it was, for example, zoned for agricultural uses, now gets the golden pen tick and the planning system says, hey, now you can do a residential subdivision. You didn't have to buy that right to do it because you bought the right to operate an agricultural business, but now we're giving you that for free. And so the game there is all about persuading decision makers in councils and state governments to upzone areas where you have property rights. And that can be very valuable. And obviously this is my background in in property development. So what what we sort of did to illustrate this, and it's in the book, was also part of my PhD, is in Queensland between 2008 and 2012, there are a series of upzonings where the state government power from the councils and said, hey, we want these to be high density, fast track, new areas. And what was interesting about it is if you looked at the map, the the shapes of those areas were very bizarre, right? It's not obvious why they were drawn that way, why they weren't three times bigger. And so what we could do is look at the landowners who were just inside that line on a map who got the benefit of now being able to develop bigger and faster and with fewer uh, regulatory controls and the landowners who are next door or across the road who happen to just have essentially the same merit, right, for for being upzoned, but happen to miss out. They're on the other side of the line. And the question I was, is it a characteristic of the land that determines where these areas are or is it the characteristic of the land owner? And I initially thought that looking at political donations and you know, the landowner registry and matching all this up that I would see that political donations mean that you get the line drawn around your block of land. 
but it wasn't so. What we ended up having to do is look a bit deeper. We looked at clients of professional lobbyists. There's a register of those. We looked at corporate records of, of landowners that were companies or organizations. And we looked at former re- records of state politicians, biographies, and we mapped this relationship network of over 250,000 relationships for 12,000 individuals and companies. And it was quite interesting because what you could do is then once you saw this, it was very easy to predict where that line was drawn on the map and who got upzoned wow. by where the property wa- owner was in this relationship network. And so that's sort of indicative of this mateship network, right? That where possible, where you've got this discretion, do I draw the line here or the line here? You make sure you include your mates. And so the other interesting part about that is those same measures of connectedness in this social network have been used by a social scientist to look at uh, the Italian mafia and the Japanese Yakuza, the organized crime gangs, to predict who has the highest incomes in those criminal gangs, right? So the more well-connected you are in the, the criminal gang, the higher, essentially the more money gets sucked up towards you through the gang's operations. So there's something innate about how we structure human relationships in this unregulated human world, right? Where it's hard to enforce contracts, right? The the mafia can't enforce contracts with each other except internally. And it's sort of the same thing with the game of mates and these grey gifts. You you sort of have to rely on those signals to enforce or learn who to favour and who not to favour. The analogy or the comparison with criminal organisations is a fascinating one. I'm curious, this isn't an economics or a political question. This is a is almost a question around morality. As you've gone through this work and you've seen those types of comparisons, what has your view on human nature changed as you've learned more about about this? That's a funny question. And I think I think I can now see more the benefits and the risks to human nature. I guess I can appreciate it more because in a world without grey gifts, where gift giving costs me personally, these networks still exist, right? Friendship networks and family networks, and you build up trust. And as a as a collective the the benefit to every individual is high, even without grey gifts and with even, you know, not being corrupt at all, right? So so I see that as a real positive insight into human nature. And now, and I guess what I can do also is see the risks of that, where we don't design our decision-making about how we allocate resources collectively so that really deep part of human nature doesn't end up sort of costing out the rest of us, right? Where where you don't end up with a group of mates who happen to be able to give grey gifts doing the same thing as we do in our personal lives. So I, I guess I have an evolved view of human nature. I don't think I've become more cynical. Uh, I mean, I'm more cynical of reading the press and taking the myth-making seriously, right, of certain interest groups. But in terms of human nature, I guess I appreciate the social, the ingrained uh, sort of social ties that we we build automatically. And, and that's also worth reflecting. The game of mates is not, I try to say it's not a conspiracy. We didn't sit in a room to do this. It's just human nature means we're very good when we get looked after by someone, recognizing other people in our groups and looking after them and feeling good about being part of a tribe. We don't have to sit in a room and, and tell each other, this is what you do, this is what I do. To, to get to that point. So that's one of its greatest benefits in terms of personal friendship networks and building trust in communities, but then you know, it ha- there happens to be risks as well. Some governments around the world have recognised that human psychology and human nature 
plays a large role in obviously in decision making and they've tried to put in place behavioural psychology or behavioural sciences units within government to recognise that. So I think of the nudge unit, which is now very well known, which is part of the kind of mm-hmm. UK government decision making. I'm not sure actually if we have an equivalent in Australia, you might be able to help me there. But do you think those sorts of, of units are effective? Pretty sure we did get on board with that nudge trend about 10 years ago, maybe in the Productivity Commission or something like that. I guess my attitude to that is more, there are good insights. So for example, uh, I think one of the changes we made is when you do your tax return, it actually tells you how your taxes are spent when you get your return and you go, this is retirement, this is unemployment, this is the military, this is whatever. Right. With and the so just, with the inference being that if you're if you can see where the money is going, you're less luck- likely to be dodgy on your tax return. Yeah, correct. You're sort of saying, "Oh, I've stolen from these recipients of this money if I am dodgy." So that's exactly right. And so all those small insights are really good. I think at the, at the end of the day, my fear is that in general, a lot of political decisions are made and and laws passed that really don't consider economic incentives and not just the basic sort of textbook economic incentives, but these more social incentives to you know, how you game the system over time. And, and that's a bit of a worry. And I guess that's also why we wrote the book to sort of demonstrate that sometimes you write laws for so that some person has this discretion so that they can be accountable for what happens, right? But maybe that's not the best outcome for society. Maybe you just want, we're we're, we're sort of big on randomizing decision makers and big on randomizing decisions themselves to just remove that gray gift ability. But that hasn't quite been (laughs) picked up too widely. And doing stuff like that overcomes a lot of biases and nudge issues in general anyway. To make this real for our listeners, you actually mention a couple of well-known names specifically in the property sector, Campbell Newman and Flan, there was a couple of others. Can you give an example of what it looks like in practice? Yeah, so it works in both ways, right? So politicians have incentives and so do to organisations in regulated industries. Some listeners might be familiar with Springfield Land Corporation. So Springfield's a suburb between Brisbane and Ipswich that was bought by Maha Sinathambe for $7 million in 1990 or so. It was a former federal government uh, military base, I believe. And no one wanted this, the property because it didn't have any road connection. It needed a huge amount of investment in, in roads and, and drainage and clearing. And so no one really wanted it. So, but Maha embarked on a fairly long period of lobbying and donating to politicians and hosting events and really doing that signaling game to say, hey, I'm a person who's worth favoring here. And ultimately got council and the state to decide to include roads through his land on their uh, capital works programs. And then later he got a four-lane highway widening to his property and then a, a rail extension with two stations. And remember, this is just one suburb master plan subdivision. He got a, a rail extension with two train stations and a four-lane highway when only 20,000 people were living there. And at the same time, at the Sunshine Coast, there were 200,000 people living there begging for a rail extension and a highway upgrade at the same time. So it turns out that Maha had uh, various, I think he had Campbell Newman do some consulting work. He had various senior bureaucrats and former heads of department come and sit on his board and do other sorts of things in his business to sort of reward those decisions with later, I'll go out on a limb and just say token jobs, right? 
Jobs for the boys, I think, is the term. Jobs for the – how could I forget? (laughs) So, yeah, that's exactly right. That's how it works. And and that process has taken 30 years. And there are still people with sort of outstanding IOUs from from that process, right, who are likely to be favoured and and back and forth. So, you know, had we instead, for example, you know, tossed a coin – to decide which train line to extend. You know, maybe the Sunshine Coast would have a, a rail extension, but we didn't. We used the minister's discretion and the minister's discretion had, you know, being a human being was about a bit of loyalty, feeling good, looking after your mates, telling those same myths, sort of buying into that story. I mean, the more interesting part there is uh, I worked with a journalist uncovering, you know, how much the state government had spent on this guy's subdivision in terms of roads and whatnot. And, uh, and the really funny thing is that you know, it came out in a trade magazine that all these numbers he'd, this this journalist had got from the, the state government records. And uh, and then Maha Sinathembe said, take this down or I'll have, you know, take up a defamation suit against you, right? Really playing hardball just for revealing this thing because that's sort of a taboo, right? The myth-making is all about hiding this and providing a cover story. And we were doing the opposite and signaled that we're real outsiders. And, and you know, if you let us get too carried away, we might expose more favours. And so he, he felt the need to threaten us with the defamation suit with some really dubious claims that certain things had been misreported, which weren't even in the in the article, right? So, and, and it's funny, and, and the funniest part about that, sorry, and that's in the book, is how he brags about using frivolous lawsuits to get his way during this project. So he he recounts in his own book, he wrote a motivational sort of help self-help book about how to become a billionaire. And in it, he explains how he was going to go broke because he owed all these builders money and he didn't have the cash flow early on in this project. And so he said, well, the only solution to that was to to take up a, a legal case against them and for, for poor quality uh, completion of their, their, their construction contract so we can defer paying them. And he literally brags about it in his book, mm. which sort of shows the, the sort of mentality involved when you get sucked into this game that you know, w- when we come along and say similar things, we're, we're outsiders and we get cast out and you know, lawsuits against us. But when he brags about it, he's feels like he's talking to his other insider mates about it and so he can write it in his book. Well, I can say with absolute certainty that Spectator Australia journalists wouldn't be cowered by that form of intimidation, which is a (laughs) wonderful segue to say that for just $16.99 a month with one month free to boot, it is a wonderful deal. I strongly suggest everyone listening gets a yearly Spectator Australia digital subscription. Now, Cameron, the Superannuation industry, you have said, is almost the emblematic example of the game in Australia. Before we get to how that's actually how that actually works, I, I was interested in the quote that you included in Rigged from Ross Gittins. And Ross says, the yep. government compels employers to take 10% of their workers' wages, hand this over to the financial services industry, then look the other way while these fat cats rip off the mugs the government has delivered into their hands. I yeah. take it from the inclusion of this quote in your book that you're not a fan of compulsory super. Is that fair? <laughs> yeah. If anyone follows me on Twitter, um, <laughs> at Dr. Cameron Murray, you will be bombarded with arguments against superannuation. And Before uh, we get into the game, give, 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 to tell, tell us your, your ideological position on that because I do follow you on Twitter and I have found it absolutely fascinating and I think our listeners will too. Yeah. So it's funny. You know, I was raised in a pretty, not conservative, like politically, but 
socially conservative household and that basically you know thought that saving was good and virtuous and compulsory super seems sensible and I, I didn't put a lot of thought into it until I started really studying it in more detail and came to the conclusion that this system doesn't do anything that it's claimed to do. My position these days is that the ideal retirement system is what we have minus superannuation, essentially an age pension for everyone, probably with a little bit more adjustment for renters versus homeowners, so that old age renters, and probably with a retirement age at 65 or younger, we've just increased it up to 67. And that would be completely fine because the super system is extremely expensive in terms of management. It doesn't achieve the insurance function so, for example, people who don't earn a lot of money during their working life don't benefit from it. So it doesn't like ta- redistribute money around the community. What would you say to someone who says that uh, a poor person saving a little bit for their retirement is better than a poor person saving nothing at all? Yeah, well, I would say, you know, it's even better than that. Having a collective insurance system, just like a poor person doesn't have to save up in case they crash their car, they can buy insurance. So they're not out of pocket at that point. And essentially, their car is fixed by the premiums of other people in the insurance pool, uh, we can do better than individual savings for retirement, just like we do better for it in insurance generally. And you know what? The broadest pool of insurance at a national level is going to be the most efficient way to do it. So so that would be my point. And, and I think my other part of my response to, well, poor people saving a little is good. The bottom 25 to 30% of households, when they age onto the age pension, get a pay rise. So they earn more when they get onto the age pension they earned the year before. So the question you've got to ask is why would we have a system that makes them poorer when they're poorer than they are on the age pension, right? Which we already think is pretty basic. And that's also true of even younger people. So if you're in your 20s, let's just say you're 27, you've got three kids at school or young kids, right? And you've got, you know, one income earner. At the same time, we're saying, hey, uh, we're going to give you a family tax benefit because you don't have much, enough money because you've got five mouths to feed, whatever. We're also saying, but do you know what? You've got too much money, so we want 10% of it as well for super. Like it can't be both, right? So economists call this the income smoothing function of, of super, whereas you save during your peak income years for retirement years. But the problem is that's not how it works. It's save every single year when your peak income years are actually age 45 to 60, so the optimal super is actually borrow money from your future self when you were young, when between 45 and 60, save 40% of what you earn, right? And then use that again later. That would smooth your lifetime income the best, right? So there's a whole bunch of things that super doesn't do. It amplifies all the working age inequalities into retirement. The tax breaks are just a huge upwards distribution of wealth. Uh, so the predominantly the tax breaks go to people who weren't going to be on the age pension. And it barely shifts anyone off the age pension anyway, um, even after 30 years. And, and all projections are for that to continue. So, so I'm, I've really, you know, and I've just gone through, so I've got two kids in high school now. I've just gone through this stage of why are you taking all my money? I'm in the <laughs> highest expense period of my whole life. The probability of me even aging to be on the age pension is only like 84%, right? So I've got a one in seven chance of dying before mm. I even get the age pension. And you're telling me the optimal thing to do is be poor while you have young kids in a lovely family and can't buy a house so that you've got an 84% chance of, you know, having a few dollars extra then. Like it didn't make sense to me then it's it still doesn't make sense to me now 
and, and you know, the myth-making around super, and this is the perverse part for me, is that the, the, the notionally left of politics, right, has, has sort of taken on board this idea of privatised tax advantage retirement systems as its key policy platform. And I guarantee you, if this was a Liberal Party policy, okay, Labor would be out against it. They would hate it. This would be the, the first thing they would want to get rid of, right? But, you know, politics is not about principles. It's about people. And historically, uh, the Labor Party, you know, now has union members and, and, and organisations benefiting from this system. I think you know, it was you, who, this, yeah. you who, who, who made the observation on Twitter that Perite's suggestion of basically kind of a co-payment for putting some savings away for your kids' education was effectively super for kids and the Labor Party opposed it and, uh, yeah. and that's despite being firm advocates of the superannuation system. Yeah, exactly. So the New South Wales Premier proposed giving every kid born in New South Wales like a few thousand dollars at birth or a few hundred dollars a year each year till they're 18 and then using that for, you know, education or housing or whatever the purpose was. And, and that's also perverse because at the end of the day, you're essentially just giving 18-year-olds money, but you've got this accounting trick to do it at different points in time. Had he come out and said, we want to give 18-year-olds 10 grand each, right? He would have been laughed at, but he's dressed it up like this taken advantage of the sort of Labor Party myth and said, hey, this is essentially your policy, still couldn't sell it. Yeah, that, you know, that's sort of emblematic of when we get sucked into policy debate by taking the myths and the stories that, that get told by these interest groups seriously and not being able to sort of see through it to see the, the content of, of, of a policy, which is sort of what I've spent the last 10 years learning to do. And it, it's very difficult, right? Because people like to, talking about the social aspect of it. They like talking about the political drama of it. And it's very hard to sit down and go, how is this decision made? Who does it? Who's responsible? What mechanism exists to hold them to account? And so on and so forth. It's part of the broader trend, which I think is is been one of the real tragedies of the last 10, 20 years. And that is turning politics into sport and now you no longer evaluate particular policies based on their merits. It's overwhelmingly whether or not they come from the left or the right side of politics and then you retrofit your principles to, to support what is now your team. Yeah, uh, look, uh, I totally agree that about the sport aspect. Um, can you just remind me to come back and talk about this values and identity-based stuff? But uh, you reminded me of... A Jerry Seinfeld bit where he talks about sport and how in professional sport team, players will just change teams from one week to the next and he says at the end of the day you're not cheering for a team you're cheering for laundry you're cheering <laughs> for the clothes they're wearing not the players or the team right so and I think that's what politics has become like like it's very superficial we're cheering for the laundry and we're you know we're not concentrating on the game and so the football analogy would be how how are the rules enforced do we draw referees from um the countries playing the test match or do we draw random referees from you know third party countries so that they're not biased when they're refereeing the game how do we do match review do, is this rule efficient does it increase the speed of the game or lead to more points right we need to focus on that substance and um, my experience 
is that there's another distraction apart from the laundry and the, the political identity. And that distraction is sort of a value identity based uh, thing. Like I'm a person who thinks this, therefore this. And we saw that actually this week, I think it's Julie Collins is the house, minister for housing in the federal government at the moment, Labor Party minister, who's trying to push this housing future fund. And she this is the line. It was like, well, you either believe in, you know, that Australians deserve housing and you're for this policy or you don't believe this and you're against it, right? I'm like, but the content of the policy is unrelated to whether you believe this. If you believe people deserve housing, doesn't mean this is a good way to get it because you actually have to understand the content and the mechanisms drawn into the law and, and how it's going to play out and the incentives for the participants involved. And, and you don't even seem to care. And yeah. I was a, I was actually um, giving expert testimony to the Senate inquiry a couple of weeks ago into that. My impression was a lot of the senators didn't even understand what was written in the bill. They kept saying, oh, this is secure long-term funding insulated from politics. And I'm like, can you point to the paragraph? Because what I see is high-risk funding that's insecure where you defer decisions to future ministers and basically grant them all this discretion while also limiting how much they can spend with discretion. You have no sort of mechanism to force them to spend. You have no particular types of ways they can spend and which ones they can't. You know, that you're representing this as the exact opposite of what's written down, but no one seemed to care. It's really hard because if you're the type of person like me who now really cares about the content of what's there and I don't I just do not care about the politics anymore. I just I'm disgusted with just about everyone. And it's very hard. You know, you you kind of feel like the world's going crazy. And in fact, it's one reason I, I propose actually having uh, the upper house be just a random drawn, like a jury is for a criminal trial, just literally just pick people out of the street because at least then they don't have this baggage of being loyal to a party or loyal to these mates. And they just, they're going to be more representative of Aussies. They're going to have more common sense rather than this sort of like, I don't know what you call it, intellectualizing political brain that you get. I think the experience of the last 20 years of people like Ricky Muir and Jackie Lambie and just non-politicians who got there, look, they gave it a good crack. I don't agree with them, but yeah. if I had 70 or 80 of them have to hash out what they think makes sense, gee, I think we'd get some really, really different policy settings. Yeah, I agree entirely. There was an elephant in the room there as you were speaking, and that was the voice debate. And I think the exact same mm. thing is playing out in the voice where, unfortunately, there are too many people who support the voice that say, agree with this legal change or else you are a racist or else you're a bad person. We saw the same thing in Brexit. It's a real tragedy for the way that we talk about politics. And unfortunately, it's it's just, it doesn't seem to be ending anytime soon. Oh, look, I'm 100% with you. And on the voice... Look, I, I've just not been able to say anything because I feel like it's just this its shadow boxing. It's this pretend game to keep the media entertained, right? There's, there's no substance to it. On the one hand, it's going to be really, really important, right? The voice is this representative body is going to have all this power. And on the other hand, it's not going to have power because it's not going to undermine other power. Like if this is the state of the discussion, I'm just not going to participate. I, I know typically I'm a, you know, I'm a trained economist. So, so sometimes people misread me into thinking I th you know, I'm a big lefty and I want the government to fix things. Well, all s I want systems that work. And sometimes that means some subsidization and you don't get that voluntarily very much, right? So yes, governments are going to play a role. But I, and I also think that 
dealing with issues close to where they are is best. I really don't see a body sitting in Canberra helping outback Northern Territory Indigenous communities. Yes. Right? It's it, We've tried lots of different things. I just think keep trying, right? I'm really wary of people very far from an issue sort of saying I stand up for these people. So, you know, that that's a general rule. I don't even know what's going on in the voice because it's so mm. bizarre. So, you know, it's weird. We're going to go through all this cost and hassle of dealing with the voice. When I wonder how many schools or teachers or, you know, how much care can be given to actual Indigenous youths in, in, in areas to sort of, you know, integrate them and, and get them off the street, occupy them, give them, you know, some future possibilities. People say, you know, there's a, there's a tension between, oh, they're just living on welfare or whatever. I'm like, yeah, but okay. But if they ultimately get a better life in the long run, that's an investment. I'm fine with it. And if you're still going to say that, well, how's the voice going to change anything? If when I propose something practical on the ground, you know, you're going to say no anyway. So these are all the the, the puzzling things that go through my mind and why I don't sort of get bogged down in that. But I'm but surprised how many people do who yes. are otherwise politically seem astute by our political standards, but then waste all this time on these signaling games and, you know, these sort of media sideshows. Yeah, I agree. And as an aside to to our listeners, we have Warren Mundine coming on the podcast in a couple of weeks who would share a few of those reservations about the voice, no doubt. So look out for that one. A couple of final questions, Cameron. The first, and this is uh, something which I thought was really interesting in your book, is how the game has changed the cultural, cultural fabric of Australia. Talk to us about how you think this game does affect our culture. A few things are the sort of the the undermining of the sort of larrikin risk taking to be more towards like loyalty conforming uh, approach, which is is you could overread into this, of course, but you know it's entertainment also the podcast, so we'll we'll <laughs> go with it. But you can sort of see that in the less risk taking in in business and, and the corporate culture because you, you know you really don't want to upset the apple cart. You just want to keep playing this very basic, you know, dig holes and, and trade houses or whatever. You know, the predominant things in the Australian economy. So I think a little bit of a lack of dynamism on that from that loyalty culture. In general, it's a bit conformist in that way, I would say. What would, what would be your thinking on the culture, Will? Yeah, I, I agree entirely with the larrikin instinct in Australia slowly fading away. And I think whilst this isn't a, a direct cause, it is swimming with that same current, uh, yeah, which, is, which, right. which is a real, real shame. The, the impacts on our politics are really clear. I, th- I think this is another perverse incentive to encourage mediocre people into politics. Uh, and I think there's there's a uh, I think it's obvious to anyone with with a pulse now that the quality of politicians is really really poor. You can you can look at some things like increasing pay, but I think to your point, improving the systems in which politicians operate would be a really good way of then trying to improve the nature of people who are involved. Yeah, look, I think you're right, and actually, I I tell a lot of people. So there's this idea that when you know, John Howard was in government for a long time, the Labor Party loyalists would say, "Oh, we just need to get that, that those guys out and get our guys in, and we'll be fine." Right? I'm like, mm, okay. And then a lot of independents and you know minor parties think, "Well, we just get rid of them and get our guy in." And again, the the point being is, it's not about an individual, right? Eventually, if that individual doesn't really have enough power to get change or doesn't have a really strong agenda that they're just going to push for and then 
leave, retire, they're going to get sucked in as well. And so it's, it's really, as you say, it's about systems and why I'm such a big fan of just randomly appointing people, right, to things or making decisions by lottery. That, that's one of the reasons. Mm. My final question is one in which I ask you to take off your economist hat and put on your hat as a parent. You mentioned that you've got two kids in high school at the moment. Yep. Would you be encouraging your two kids to play the game or would you be encouraging them to stand up against the game? <laughs> Look, that's a really good question because there's the personal game where you look after your friends and the problem there is that you, when you're very good at that and it's subconscious, if you end up in these positions of power and these grey gifts, then you, you can't stop doing that because that's what's ingrained. So I, I think I'm just going to try and tread that line of like look after your friends and your family but be aware that there's a social responsibility where if you have power over the resources of the community, you know, you should, you, you've got to be able to tell your friends no just about and say, look, this is, you know, draw a line. And it's really hard. Look, I've been involved in community groups. I've been, I tried running for politics a couple of times thinking, well, someone's got to put their hand up. And, it, and it's really hard. And in fact, one of the ideas in the book is when we have these public committees or bureaucracies decide on essentially allocation decisions, grey gifts, granting contracts, et cetera, Perhaps we could make them private as well as random because if you are put on this and you're seen not to favour your mates, then it's it's very hard decision to make even if you had a reason for wanting to or even if you think it's in the best interest. So sometimes anonymity can have some benefits also. So again, it's it's very tricky and I'm very much a, a experimental type person. I think we should try these at, at council levels first and then certain parts of the state and Queensland, for example, uh, got rid of its upper house of parliament in in the 1920s, so we could reinstate it as a people's parliament, where you know every four years we replace half by random draw of people between certain ages distributed around the state. Right? These are the types of experiments where we'd learn, you know, what works, and then we'd have some systems where people wouldn't have to be so personally alert to these two tensions of favouring mates when it's grey corruption and favouring friends when it's private favours and gifts. Well said. We've only scratched the surface of the analysis that you've done on these range of issues. I strongly suggest to our listeners to pick up a copy of Rigged to learn more. A link is in the show notes. We've mentioned your Twitter feed. I think that you are one of the most interesting and insightful people that pops up on my Twitter every day. And I, I learn a lot from you, Cameron. So I also strongly recommend to everyone to, to follow you there. Keep exposing these issues This and also keep offering these sorts of ideas because whilst change is difficult and slow, it's only through people like you saying this sort of stuff that we've got to chance of actually seeing that change. So thank you very much for, for everything you're doing and and, uh, and thank you for uh, at least starting the process of exposing the game of mates. Well, thanks for having me, Will, and I hope you keep it up also. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Australiana. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and a review. And if you really enjoyed the show, head to spectator.com.au forward slash join. Sign up for a digital subscription today and you'll get your first month absolutely free.